Amen, indeed. I want to say a special welcome to those that are joining us online today uh, via our live stream. We are glad that you are joining us. I also want to welcome those that are joining us on the radio through KTCU. I'm so thankful for the technology that allows us to come together in the midst of these times uh, and to be together even when we're not. So it is good for us to come together in this way. So we are continuing a series uh, that we are in the midst of that we are calling the leading causes of life. We all know we can probably recite some of the leading causes of death, especially now in this pandemic, which because of which last year was the third leading cause of death, COVID-19. But in this series, we're talking about the leading causes of life. What are those things that, that lead us towards life, the life that God intends for us to live, one that is filled with vitality and wholeness, one that is filled with meaning, with health? The text that we're going to hear this morning comes from Matthew's version of the telling of the story of Jesus. Now, oftentimes when you read these stories, what we refer to as gospels, you'll quickly notice that there's a lot of people that are opposed to the teaching and to the public ministry of Jesus. These people are oftentimes labeled in the Scriptures as the religious leaders or the teachers of the law. But when you dig a little deeper, however, you find that these teachers were essentially divided into two main groups. One was the Pharisees and the other was the Sadducees. And both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were religious leaders of the day. They were, uh, they were the religious leaders, and in, in many ways they were similar, but in other ways they were very different. And part of the reason that they were religious leaders of the day is that, is that in that time, Jewish people believed that their religious practices had an enormous sway over every part of their life. Therefore, the Pharisees and the Sadducees held a lot of power, a lot of influence, not just over the religious lives of the Jewish people, but also their finances and their work habits, their family lives, all elements of their life. Both Pharisees and the Sadducees were experts in law, meaning that they were experts on the Jewish Scriptures. Actually, the expertise of the Pharisees and the Sadducees went beyond the Scriptures themselves. They were also experts on how to interpret the law of the Old Testament. Those laws, scholars agree, count them all up, there was about 613 of those, some of them uh, negative, sort of the thou shalt nots, and then some of them were positive, the thou shalt. These are the things that you should do. Those are the things that you should not do. In this section of the story, Jesus had been sparring with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and, and as you'll hear, he makes them look a little foolish, out of touch with reality, and so they gang up on him. Even though there are differences, they gang up on him, and they try to trip him up by, by asking him about all of the laws, of all 613 laws, what was the one that was most important? And Jesus' response comes from Deuteronomy 6. It's known as the Shema. In the Jewish tradition, it is sort of like the Lord's Prayer. They say it every time that they come together for worship. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Church, that's all the Hebrew I know. I've just shared with you all the Hebrew that I know. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
The second part of this comes from Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here now, Jesus' interpretation of the most important of all the laws. A reading from Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the, Pharisee, the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, he asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. John Ortberg is a Presbyterian minister in Northern California, and he recently pointed out that we are living in a world of what he refers to as TLAs, which stands for three-letter anacronyms. Itself is a TLA, I guess you could say. They're, they're all over the place. You look at the government, you've got the FBI and the CIA and the GOP. There are, uh, go to the business world, there's CFO, a CEO, all of whom, assumably, have an MBA. If you go to the airport, you either fly into DFW or DAL, maybe you fly into SFO, but even more now than ever. Because of texting, we have even more TLAs. Right? OMG, WTH, BRB, LOL. You surely have your own favorite TLAs. But the most tragic of all of the TLAs, the three letter and acronym, comes from the medical world, and it is simply FTT. It's what gets entered into the charts of infants who oftentimes, for unknown reason, are unable to gain weight, they're unable to grow. FTT simply means failure to thrive. We don't exactly know why they're not able to thrive. This is a phrase that sounds like an explanation, but really it explains nothing. It is one that raises more questions than provides answers. But I would argue that in many ways, FTT is not just, not just a tragic situation for infants, but for all of us. For all of us. The, that all of us, we, perhaps the, the largest mental health issue problem of our day is not depression, it's not anxiety, it's languishing. It's a failure to thrive. You see, languishing is the opposite of flourishing. It's the fear that Henry David Thoreau once said. He said, when I came to die, I would discover that I not had lived. That is my greatest fear. We all live with that. That, that when we get to the end of our life, we will discover that, that it never really started, that we kept waiting, we kept waiting for life to begin. A failure to thrive. 
You see, I would argue that God wants us to flourish, to thrive. And I would also argue that for that to happen, that we need a level of coherence. Coherence. What do you mean by coherence? Russ, I hear you asking. According to the dictionary, it means essentially the act or state of cohering, of cohesion. Thank you. That's helpful. Logical interconnection and overall sense of understandability. It means congruency. It means continuity. Clear as mud, right? Think about it as the opposite, though. If someone is incoherent, it means they don't make sense. Your argument is incoherent. It doesn't make sense. In many ways, if life is incoherent, it doesn't make sense. And I would argue that for us to thrive, to live lives of vitality, of wholeness, of health, the the lives that God has entrusted us to live, that life has to make sense at some level. We have to have the sense that, that there's a purpose for our being here, that our lives have a level of meaning for life to make sense, there has to be a, perfect, a purpose about who you are and about, about what you are contributing to this world. And I would argue living with a sense that, that this is what God wants me to do. This is who God wants me to be. Countless studies have shown that when our lives lack a sense of purpose, a, a lack of meaning, that it affects us deeply that we languish, that it affects us not just emotionally, not just spiritually, but also physically. Medical types will tell you that there's all sorts of research that has been done that shows that, that if our lives have a level of meaningless, if we struggle with our purpose, that it has an impact on our physical health. That we need a sense that our life has a purpose. Our emotional, our spiritual, our physical health, it depends on it. I recently read the story of a gentleman by the name of Fred Willis. He retired from the military. He was a career man. And for years he had been dreaming of being free to be able to do whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to be able to do it. It seems the dream of most people as they near the end of their careers, they get towards retirement. No more wake-up calls, no more staff meetings, can I get an amen? It wasn't so much that he wanted to do things, it was that he was very clear on what he didn't want to do. Well, his pension was good, and so he and his wife bought a house in Florida. Why not? All of his kids uh, were grown, and they were scattered across the United States. And, And Florida was a lot nicer. He would no longer have to shovel the driveway as he did in Indianapolis, and so this seemed like the perfect place to go. And so they moved Bought a nice little house there in Florida, and retirement was going well for Fred for about three months. And then he got a little bored, got a little restless. You can only play so much golf, he said. I don't believe it, but that's what he says. He wasn't going to be a part of the shuffleboard crowd. He had this nagging feeling, this question that kept running through his mind every morning. Is this all there is? Is this all there is? You see, the problem with retirement was not not having enough money. The new house was nice. What Fred was missing was the sense that there was something more that he should have been doing with his life. 
theologians, pastor folks, would say that what he was lacking was a sense of calling. A call is something that we talk about a lot in the life of the church, but all too often, all too often, it's just referring to us minister types, but I would argue that it's not just for clergy, that God has a call upon all of our lives that we all have a call in our life. For Fred, that call did come. For Fred, it was literally, actually a phone call. A friend back in Indianapolis called him and told him about a community center that needed an executive director. He said, the pay won't be much. The kids are a little on the rough side, but your organizational ability and experience with people is just what they need. They could really use someone like you, and I thought you might be up for a new challenge. He thought about it overnight. He talked about it with his wife. He prayed about it. And the next day, he called his friend and accepted the job. They moved back to Indianapolis. And for the first time since he retired, he said, I feel alive. What about you? What about you? Is there a way that God is calling you? What is God calling you to do? Who, who is God calling you to be? What is your purpose? Does your life in this moment have a sense of coherence? Now, let me be crystal clear. When I talk about your calling, I'm not necessarily talking about your career. My hope and my prayer is that you are more than your job that when we talk about calling, we're talking about something much bigger than that. When I was a student at TCU a number of years ago, there was a sign on the door of the Career Center that said simply, to hell with your career, what's your calling? When we talk about calling, we're talking about more than your job. We're talking about more than your career. We're talking about what your life is about. Pope Bronson wrote a book called What Should I Do With My Life? He traveled around the country interviewing people that had struggled trying to figure out the purpose, the meaning of their life. People that had gone down this path and realized, well, that's not the right way, and so they would go a different direction. Fifty-five of these people he interviewed told their stories in this book. It's a fascinating book. He, in, it, in it, he says this. He says, we are all writing the story of our life. We want to know what it's about, what its themes are, and which theme is on the rise. We demand of our lives something deeper, something richer, something more substantive. We want to know where we're headed, not to spoil our own ending by ruining the surprise, but we want to ensure that when the ending comes, it won't be shallow, that we will have done something. We will not have squandered our time here. We all live with that fear, don't we? That existential angst of, of, am I living the life that God has entrusted us to live? Back in 1895, an artist by the name of Edward Munch painted a picture called The Scream. Perhaps you've seen it. It is in many ways iconic. Iconic not necessarily because it's such a beautiful painting. It's kind of it's kind of anxious, as you can imagine by the title. It's, it's iconic in part because so many people can tap into it, understand it at an existential level. 
A number of years ago, it was sold for $120 million. At the time, the most expensive painting ever sold in auction. And I would argue that the reason that it has become so iconic, the reason that it is so invaluable, is that all of us at some point in our life have felt that existential angst. We live with that question, that wondering about what our lives are about if we're living the life that God created us to live. There was a book that came out a number of years ago by Parker Palmer called Let Your Life Speak. It was the first book that I ever read to the end, took a deep breath, and started it all over again. It was something that I needed to inhale a little bit deeply, a little more deeper. In fact, for a number of years, I would read it every year around my birthday, Let Your Life Speak, and and Parker would say that this question, this question that would keep him up at night is simply, is the life that I'm living the life that wants to live in me? Is the life that I'm living the life that wants to live in me? How many of you have read Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Not very many. You must not be a very effective congregation. I'm not sure (laughs) what to do with that, but that's another story for another time. In that book, I'll just give you the cliff notes since none of you have read it, he invites us to do a self-inventory and to look closely at our lives. And one of the exercises that he invites us to do is to imagine our own funeral. It's a little bit morbid, but still a helpful exercise. It's not exactly uh, the happiest of thoughts, but to imagine your own funeral in order to imagine what it is that you want said in your eulogy. The eulogy holds the essentials of our lives. So I want you to think, church, about what you want said at your funeral. And as your pastor, I would ask you to write that down and put it in a folder and give it to me. It would make my life a whole lot easier. (laughs) But to ask yourself, what do I want Russ to say in my eulogy? Do you want me to highlight how much money you made? the promotions you have, the cars that you purchased, how nice your clothes were. Is that what you want me to mention was at the heart of your life? Or would you want me to talk about the quality of your relationships, about how your children talk about about the essential character that you gave them because you spent time with them? Would you want me to talk about how generous you were, how filled with compassion you were? Would you want me to talk about how you gave back over and over again to your church and to the community around you? Do you want me to talk about, about how your faith played an essential role in everything that you did all of your life? What do you want me to say at your funeral? Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist who was sent to Auschwitz and Dachau in the midst of World War II. And during his imprisonment, he noticed that there was a difference between those who were more likely to survive and those who you could just sort of tell weren't going to make it. He said this, he said, the most apt to survive those camps were those that were oriented towards the future 
towards a meaning to be fulfilled by them in the future. The meaning of our existence is not invented by ourselves, he said, but rather detected. It's not invented by ourselves, it's detected. I think what Frankel is trying to say here is that when God created us, when God created you unique, God planted within you this sense of calling, this purpose for your life. That God said, this is what I want your life to be about. And your task, your calling in life is to discover that and then to give it away that a world to a world that is in desperate need of only the gifts that you have. Our purpose in life is not to inflict our will upon the world, but to discover God's will for our lives and to give it away. He would go on to write all this in a book. And if you translated the title into English, originally written in German, but if you translated it, it would simply say, saying yes to life in spite of everything, which is a pretty good title. I read that book. But instead, in English, in America, they simply entitled the book, Man's Search for Meaning. I read it a number of years ago, deeply profound and meaningful in many ways. It should be required reading for all of us, men and women. In it, he says this, a thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets proclaimed by the final wisdom of so many thinkers that the truth that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which humanity can aspire. That love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which humanity can aspire. And then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart, that the salvation of men and women is through love and in love. That the salvation... Salvation is in love and through love. In the text that you heard just a minute ago that Kyle read, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees. They're trying to trick him. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds, that's easy. Love. Love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all that you are. And the second is just like it. In fact, it's almost the same. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love. Give yourself away in love. If you ask Jesus what life is all about, what really matters most, what the reason that we are all here is to love, to love. Do this, he said. Do this and life will make sense. If that's all you did, Jesus says, that would be enough. Enough.